like to invite you this morning to turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. Although we'll take a brief excursion into John 11, the sermon will come from John 20. Happy Easter Resurrection Sunday to you. If you have a print Bible, I would, I would urge you to use it uh, this morning. If not, I'm sure the words will be on the screen behind me. They're always too good to do that. Uh, but I think you might see a few things by flipping in the pages with me if you're, if you're able to do that. Then that's, that's grand. I said before we looked at John 20, we'd look at John 11 just, just briefly to frame it. Really, John 11 through 20 forms the second half of the Gospel of John. And, of course, the second half of that ends with the classic resurrection passage, Jesus is risen in John 20. And that, that's where we're going to drill down deep this morning. This one, uh, I want to look at a, at a different resurrection that happened in John to frame it. Um, John 11, uh, 35, two words, Jesus wept. I can teach you a Bible verse in less than a minute. You can repeat it with me if you want to now. Jesus wept. And as any good students of the Bible, you need to know where that verse came from. Uh, so you need to memorize the book and the chapter and the verse in order to know how to reference that verse in the future. So it's not enough to just memorize the verse itself. You also need to know where it's found. And so Jesus wept is found in John chapter 11, verse 35. So you can say that if you want to. John chapter 11, verse 35. So you can say the verse with me. Jesus wept, John chapter 11, verse 35. And so were you to begin being catechized in the word of God, you just memorize the Bible verse, you're on your way. And we do teach you to memorize book, chapter, and verse, as well as the content of the verse itself. And when you need to memorize, when you need to recite a Bible verse on command, you can now do it. Jesus wept, John 11, 35. What is the context of that little verse? Well, Jesus wept over the death of a friend. The friend's name was Lazarus. Lazarus, the brother of two sisters, Mary and Martha. They lived in Bethany, a few miles outside of Jerusalem, where Jesus himself would be crucified. Whatever you think of Jesus, it's difficult to imagine that Jesus, in his earthly ministry, lived immune to the troubles that we go through in our lives, that he lived immune to pain. In fact, his 33 years of life were riddled with pain. Calluses on his carpentry hands, hurt from being misunderstood at the temple, misunderstood by many, misunderstood, even abandoned by his own closest followers, hungry, Weeks on end, thirsty, alone, mocked, beaten, even murdered. And he had scars to prove it. 
I should rather say has scars to prove it. Whatever you think of Jesus, it cannot be said that his story includes insensitivity toward human pain, toward our pain. And perhaps there's never a verse that summarizes that any more succinctly than John eleven thirty five, which you now know, Jesus wept. I wonder, maybe you're not breaking out in tears at this moment. Uh, perhaps you might. But I wonder how many of you inside weep. Jesus wept over the death of a loved one. I wonder if you have. Maybe recently. Do you need to feel this day that Jesus not only faced death, but the day that he mourned death as well? If you live long enough, and I know for some of the children it may be more difficult to understand, although some of you may be acutely aware of what I'm saying, but if you live long enough, you will lose a loved one. And when loss is expected, even, it's no less painful. That's one of the reasons we pray together and offer prayers for those that are grieving almost every Sunday and during our prayer of supplication because it's a real pain that exists across time. In some ways, they say that that pain never really goes away. You just, you just kind of learn to cope a little better with time. You sort of walk with a limp. You don't really get over it. And that really is, to use fancy terms, the chief existential threat against mankind is our, our death. I mean, what, what, what will you do with death? The origins of life beckon questions about the origins of death. But when you don't expect a death, when it seems to come on you and you, you didn't see it coming, um, well, it... It can send you in a spiral. It can create a sort of chaotic emotional time for you uh, that sometimes is precipitated by a time of great numbness. Just, just don't know how to feel. And then feelings that you didn't know were there. I don't want to psychologize the story of Jesus' resurrection completely. I simply want to say this morning, without falling into error there, I hope, that to imagine that Jesus is ambivalent toward your tears and your pain is to imagine a Jesus not of the biblical text. When Lazarus died, John 11 talks about it, they would have possibly said, this man was too young to die. I didn't expect him to die right now. Thoughts like, I didn't expect death to come on her like this. So the sting of death is real, and it's, Embedded into the Gospel of John. In fact, it's embedded into the Gospel, period. It is good to weep when a loved one dies. Jesus wept. When we lose a family member, a loved one, a friend, weeping is part of our experience. But how does Jesus weeping in John 11 connect with Mary's weeping in John 20? What do we do to compare and contrast the two stories? How do we understand John 20 in light of John 11 in light of the entire human experience? Lazarus' natural body resurrected. Spoiler alert. But Lazarus' natural body died again. 
If you contrast that with Jesus, as we'll see, his body rose and lives forevermore. And that is our firstborn among the dead, our hopeful example. In John 11, it's interesting. If you look at John 11, verse 44, it says, The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. And that drops us right into our text in John 20. If you just look at John chapter 20, verse 7, when Peter got to the tomb, he saw the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Jesus' resurrection raised, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, a spiritual body. What was sown a natural body raised a spiritual body. The man, Lazarus, who had died, came out with these linens still on him. But when Jesus was raised, these linens are neatly tucked away, and angels are there to testify to some different kind of resurrection. After four days of Lazarus in the tomb, he came out, and many believed. But Lazarus was raised to die again. After Jesus' resurrection, he set on motion a hope for us that's unshakable. And that hope is that when we die, we meet our Lord. But there are barriers to believing this, I realize that. Some of the barriers you'll hear when I read the entirety of John 20 in just a moment, I think, will be, how do I square what happened to Jesus with the scriptures in the Old Testament? John seemed to have that question. There are barriers that come from the inside, for sure, like Mary of Magdala, a town on the southeast side of Galilee. Hey, buddy. A town on the southeast side of Galilee. Mary had a lot of depression issues, it seems. And as we're reading through John chapter 20, what I think you'll find is that when Jesus had formerly delivered Mary from her internal troubles, he'd driven out demons from her. She couldn't imagine life with the indwelling spirit and with Jesus ascended into heaven. You're going to hear her grabbing onto him, trying to figure out what in the world to do with the fact that Jesus, now alive, is going to leave again. It's, it's a kind of a bizarre thing. So there's this barrier to internal depressions and troubles that we, we're going to see. We're also going to see the barrier of, I was a believer and then I failed, and what do I do now? Like, how do, I, how do I just keep messing up? You're going to see that in here, the barrier to continued belief. And you're also going to see the barrier to first-time belief and with ongoing doubt, like the empiricist himself, Doubting Thomas, the twin. You're going to hear these stories, these barriers, as we read this text. Um, so I just want you to listen for those things, and then we're going to take it in three chunks after you listen for those things. And I'll explain that thereafter. So we're just narrowing our way down into John Hear the word of the Lord from John chapter 20. John 20. Uh, now, I know there's about six of you girls in here that held this little boy every morning, so I don't have to do it, but I could. I could. Who knows? Maybe he'll stand in this pulpit and preach one of these days. 
We need some young boys that grow up to do that, don't we? We do. Hope you'll pray for it. Hope you'll pray for it. John chapter 20, verses 1 to 31. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. She had ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up a place in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. I should have said this earlier, but the disciple whom Jesus loved is John the Apostle, the author of the Gospel of John. I meant to say that earlier, and I failed, so I want to say that there. Now, verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, notice the scene shift, Resurrection Sunday morning, now we're on Resurrection Sunday evening. The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Verse 24, now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, unless I see his hands, the marks of his nails, and place my fingers into the mark of his nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now notice the scene shift in verse 26. Eight days later, and they would have counted the Sunday as a day, so it would have been the next Sunday. A week later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put, your, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered, My Lord, my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. A couple little textual notes here. Verse 29 reads like the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Blessed are you. It's sort of like John's version of a beatitude. And then verses 30 and 31, scholars almost universally understand verses 30 and 31 as the purpose statement of the whole book. They almost universally understand verses 30 and 31 as, if you understand what, why, the gospel of John, why John wrote the Gospel of John the way that he did, for the purpose that he did, this is the purpose statement, verses 30 and 31. So it bears repeating because it's sort of beginning with the end in sight. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these signs that are written, are written so that you may believe, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life, life in his name. But that is regarded as the purpose statement of, of the text. So I've, I've prayed for this day. I've prayed for you. I'll not labor the points. I'll get right into them. We're going to look at verses 1 to 18. We're not going to reread them. We're just going to look at them conceptually. That's Sunday morning and see what happened. We're going to look at verses 19 to 23 Sunday night conceptually and see what happened. And then we're going to look at verses 24 to 31 conceptually, which is a week later, the scene shifts that I noted earlier, and see what happens. So if you want to make notes and you like an outline, go verses 1 to 18 Sunday morning, and then verses 19 to 23 Sunday evening, and then the following Sunday should be verses 24 to 31. So let's take that on its parts. So Resurrection Sunday morning established Sunday morning as an important day in every week for the life of the believer. It's interesting that the scenes of this resurrection narrative in the Gospel of John was probably written about 50 years after the fact. It's probably one of the last books written of our New Testament toward the completion of the canon, toward the end of the first century A.D. It's likely Mary Magdalene had a long, fairly long life. The story was retold. Certainly, the Apostle John had a long life. Was able to retell this story. Maybe that's why he outran the Apostle Peter. He was thinner and younger, maybe. He lived longer than Peter. And John writes this gospel later in his life. The Gospel of John is a, is a fan favorite for believers. I mean, we just love this book. This book touches us. It's where we get that classic verse, John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world. And I've already told you, it's where we get that short little verse that everybody likes to memorize for the Sunday school competition. John 11.35 Jesus wept. The Gospel of John, these 21 chapters, they are a treasure trove of understanding Christ, of understanding God the Son, of understanding the Spirit that's come, of understanding theology, really. The Gospel of John is a treasure. Sunday, though. Sunday. Today, this Easter Resurrection Sunday, we're traveling back about 1989 years to April AD 33, and we're considering how this beloved apostle frames what happened to Jesus and how Jesus resurrected and how people interacted with it and what we're supposed to do with it. So when he comes to them, the first followers, on Sunday morning, there is a lot that goes on of surprise. So take, for example, look at John 20, verse 1. On the first day of the week, it is Sunday, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. 
So she came early, maybe somewhere between dark and daybreak. At least she was there, came back. Perhaps she went with other women to begin to harmonize what happened in each of the Gospels together. You see here that Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, and she almost immediately leaves to go tell Peter and John and the other disciples that she could find what happened. She found the tomb empty. And she believes, verse 2, she believes that somebody has taken Jesus' body. That would be the rational thing, right? I mean, somebody's moved this body. And in fact, that was the ruse that the Romans and the Jews put together, uh, sparing the execution of the guards that should have defended better. It's the ruse they put together, the end of Matthew talks about, to prevent some from believing this resurrection message. But they really couldn't keep it from being believed. There was too much evidence around it, too much faith. If you look at verse 2, it says, She ran to meet Simon Peter, the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And this is what she said. She said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. And so probably the plural we indicates that Mary was not alone on her visit to the tomb. Some of the other women that were at the foot of the cross probably stayed. Maybe Mary Magdalene ran away to tell the disciples because of just sheer shock. And how can we be dealing with this now? I mean, I just came to finish what was unfinished on, on Friday night because of how fast this all had to happen because of a Saturday Sabbath day. So she's coming back. She's probably a financier of Jesus' ministry. She probably could afford the requisite ointments that would be needed in order to properly adorn and wrap and finish the job of Jesus' burial clothes. But there was no need for that. Because as you see, even though she couldn't interpret the data right away, the burial clothes, unlike Lazarus, lie neatly folded in the place where his head and feet would have been. In fact, the angels are going to set head and foot, sort of just to symbolize, I think, in John's gospel here, that this is the point of the story, is that there's no body here. There's no head, there's no feet. In fact, his face linen is folded neatly and laid over here. This is a remarkable text, and Mary Magdalene doesn't understand everything that's going on at first. And it says also that neither did the disciples. See, they go to the tomb, as far as the narrative goes on Sunday morning, and they get there, and they beat Mary back to the tomb, for sure. Uh, even Peter, who was slower than John. And, and, and as I've already said, but look again in verse 7, the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. They find these cloths, but note in verse 8 and 9, rather, that John believed, he believed, I assume he believed Jesus resurrected there, verse 9, but he didn't understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. And, and looking at the prophets and looking back, we can understand now, with the help of the Spirit and the writings of the apostles after Pentecost, we can understand that certainly it was predicted that Jesus would have to rise from the dead. There would be no salvation without the Messiah resurrecting from the dead. But the disciples, still not fully getting the picture, they go home. It's, it's a very, very uh, disjointed. Uh, I think the purpose of this, I mean, we could have streamlined this more if we were lying 50 years later. I mean, I think the purpose of this from the Apostle John is just to be raw and saying, we didn't see this coming. Like, this just, we were totally caught off guard, and I, I, we didn't know what to do with this. We're, we're reporting the news at this point. Like, this, 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 is, this is how it happened. And and, uh, yeah, a couple of us were there to bear witness. A couple of guys were there, which had been relevant in the first century. But so were a whole host of women, including Mary Magdalene, who has her own testimony and of herself. And, no, it's not Dan Brown's story about it or some Gnostic reinvention in the 21st century. This was 
This was not Jesus' wife. It was Mary Magdalene who was healed of very much, delivered of much, and loved much. But Jesus was single. And here is Jesus who's going to appear, in terms of the flow of the narrative, to Mary. And she's going to mistake him as the gardener. You may ask yourself as you're kind of listening to this text and thinking back through it, well, why does she, why does she mistake him, him at first? Well, probably because she's crying. Her eyes are blurry. doesn't see so well when you're weeping. Um, sometimes things are hard to see whenever you're crying. Um, she's not really looking for Jesus to be there. She's still thinking that somebody has, has taken his body. Remember, it's a rich man's situation. Joseph of Arimathea was granted permission to put Jesus in a rich man's tomb, even though Jesus himself didn't front the money. He's put in this tomb, and so there would have been a round stone instead of a square one that was rolled down in front of it. It would have required permission to move the stone, and it would have required strength to move the stone. The ladies wouldn't have moved the stone that early in the morning. And so there's this, this thought process here where um, Mary Magdalene still can't get her mind around what is going on. And, and the, 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 I, I just can't get over the fact that she's so messed up inside trying to figure out what's going on that the angelic appearances don't seem to rattle her too much. She's just everything. There's so much supernatural stuff going on on the weekend. Like one would think if you bump up against a couple of angels, by and large, that's going to be enough to just really mess you up. And to just stop, but not, I mean, now Mary's just having a conversation with him. And before you think that's crazy, I think it's in there to sort of let us think there's so much stuff going on this weekend. It's such a special weekend in the history of the world. It's, it's, it's by God's design, the, the apex of human history. Time, in many ways, is reckoned, it is reckoned, by the life of Jesus. And this is the chief event in Jesus' life, that is, his death burial, resurrection before his ascension. And so we plop into this here, and Mary hasn't figured it out. And then you look at, at verse 16, and she's still weeping, and they're trying to, trying to assess her tears. They, they care, and Jesus calls her by name. He says, Mary. And she says, teacher. What a tender moment, right? Now for all you weepers out there, what a tender moment. Get with the program, Mary. Get over your anxiety, Mary. Figure it out, Mary. Be smarter, Mary. No, that's not it, is it? That's not it. Mary, teacher. Tears of sorrow turn to tears of joy. Promises made, promises kept. It's not just for Mary. It's not just for Mary Magdalene. Look at what he says to her. Verse 17. And she's clinging to him. I can't let go of you. I mean, you've, you've healed me. I was demon-possessed. I was messed up inside, riddled with anxiety. You, you've healed me. I can't let you go. I have no, where else can I go? You've got the words of eternal life. And he says, listen, don't cling to me. I've not yet ascended. I'm not ascending right now. I will ascend. Go tell my brothers. Look at the personal language here. Hours after the resurrection tops, here we have, go tell my brothers, my brothers, as in brothers and sisters, siblings, tell them I'm going to ascend to the Father, your Father, personal language, family language, going to ascend to my God and your God. Well, these are total failures of people. These human beings have ran from the scene of the action. 
In fact, the ladies stayed to tend to this. The guys were hiding, denying, cursing, lying. Now, how in any real way can Jesus say with integrity, my brothers? It's because their place in the kingdom was based on his own work and not on theirs. He's listening to a preacher of some note, Alistair Begg, and a little clip that's been floating around the internet. So well put. And he said this in one of his sermons. I want to give him credit for it. He said, if I ask you the reason for the hope that you have, and your answer begins with a first-person pronoun, you got the answer wrong. Matt, why do you have hope? I believe. Eh. Matt, why do you have hope? I've lived a pretty good life. Eh. You said the first person, pronoun I. He says it should never start with the first person. He said the right answer to why you have hope is he did it. He did it for me. He died for me. He rose again for me. He did. He, it starts with him. It doesn't start with me. I is not the right way to start a response to the reason for the hope that I have. He is the right way to start a response. It's so well put. So well put. He can call them brothers because their brothership is dependent on the work that he just achieved, same as yours and mine. But they don't get this yet at all. And so she carries a commissioned announcement to them to say, I've seen the Lord, and he tells them stuff. And so then shift to the second scene with me. Verse 19. On the evening of that day, so Sunday night, Resurrection Sunday, and in our moment here, it will be like tonight, the doors were locked to where the disciples were hiding out, afraid. But I think more than afraid, confused. And very soon to be exposed with this problem of how, how in the world can I actually be considered what I've said that I am, a follower of Christ. So if, you, if, you ever, if you've ever had that sense about it, like I've said I'm a follower of Christ, but I don't know how I can still be a follower of Christ based on how poorly I've performed as a follower of Christ. If that's the case, maybe this helps you today. Now please don't hear me preaching some sort of lawless Christianity. Don't hear me preaching a Christianity that says if we would just send some more grace, would abound some more. I don't mean to disenfranchise myself from the biblical text like that. I just mean to say this narrative gives us hope if we failed. That's all. That's all I mean to say. I don't want to go past what the text says. But look, it says on Sunday night, verse 19, the doors were being locked for the disciples were afraid of the Jews. And Jesus came and stood among them and said to them. So, by the way, I don't think Jesus in any way is a ghost because he can be touched. I think that if 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 God unlocks tombs, he unlocks doors too. Somehow he got the door unlocked. I don't know. He just did. And this happens more than once in Scripture. Locked doors are no barrier to Jesus. Not even the locked doors of your heart. God always gets his man or woman. Look here at what it says. As Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace, or in Hebrew, Shalom. That's the greeting in Israel today. Shalom. That's how you say hi. Shalom. But... There's, it's an embedded theological word. There's a lot going on there, more than we have time to get into. But just simply to say it's a holistic piece. It's an indication of what one day will be. Total and complete God-provided peace. So it's just simply a greeting to peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Remember sorrow to joy here now. 
And Jesus said, verse 21 to them again, peace be with you. And he says it a second time. So he's, he's re-enfranchised them. And apparently this needs to happen more than once. The way that we read it happening more than once in the Gospels. He's re-enfranchising them without this long litany, even of a verbal confession from them. He's re-enfranchising them by saying hello. And then the second peace be with you of the Sunday night is interesting because here he commissions them without much further fanfare and ado. He says, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. The whole Gospel of John has been about the sentness of Jesus, and now he's saying, you're, you're going to be sent now. It launches into this uh, John's version of a great commission, kind of like the end of Matthew, if you're biblically savvy. And it says in verse 22 then, following along with this train of thought, when he had said this, he breathed on them, reminiscent of Ezekiel, breathing life into these bones, certainly reminiscent of Genesis, what, what of life was put into man. We are alive because we have the what of life, the breath of life in man. So the Holy Spirit, for new life, you see the corollary. Without the Spirit, no life. Spirit, life. And so this is a foretaste of Pentecost, you think, 50 days later, that would occur. He's talking to his apostles, certainly forming the bridge between the life ministry of Jesus and 2nd century and beyond where the apostles foundation of the church. The church would be about this, this worshiping and sending, this, this peace be with you type of ministry, this preaching the proclamation for the forgiveness of sins ministry. So he says, he, he, peace be with you, receive the Holy Spirit, verse 22, and then in verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Be very careful with the interpretation of this verse. This is not a one-off, like one person with some sort of an ego trip declares someone forgiven or unforgiven. At most, this is talking about the church's authority to rightly guard and proclaim the gospel. And more than anything, I think what this is talking about is how we as ambassadors for Christ, we plural as the church, this is last week's sermon, when we go out and take the gospel... We know with authority we're reflecting heaven's gospel when we say you may be forgiven of sins, but you are not forgiven of sins unless you receive forgiveness for your sins. But we preach the gospel, like John says, to all who receive him, he gives rights, right to become children of God. What we do not say is that you automatically are in some neo-Orthodox Karl Barth kind of a way. That's not, that's not the gospel. We don't come out and say you are a Christian. We say you can be a Christian. You simply have to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have to receive that which has been provided for you. And in receiving what has been provided for you, you will have this Spirit of God indwelling you that will empower you to understand more and more. And in receiving this gospel, this good news, you will have forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness that has already been bought and paid for through the finished work of Christ on the cross, which was indeed fresh on this first Easter Sunday morning. Now, let's recap just a bit and then look at our last part of this text, the last, last text in this chapter. You see some of the ways in which they're interacting with Jesus' resurrection. You have Mary Magdalene, who has had all kinds of trouble inside, and she has trouble just simply seeing through her tears that this Jesus is resurrected for her. 
then she does, and she's sent. And you have the apostles who are trying to figure out these first disciples, these first followers are trying to figure out how the Old Testament relates with the New Covenant, and how, how does this, how is this, this happened, and that, that's true, and this is based on that, and I'm trying to piece this together, and it says in John 20, they just haven't quite gotten it all put together yet. They certainly will. They're going to write the rest of the book. I mean, that's what happens. So they will get it put together downstream from Pentecost, and then, but they don't yet. And then there's this, this sense in which they had claimed to be Christ followers, and then they, they had stumped their toe, they had failed, and here comes the risen Lord Jesus to, to call them what they are, brothers, and to get them back on track or on track with the commission, which is go, 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 take, I'm sending you as I'm sent, take my message for the opportunity for forgiveness of sins to anyone that will listen. So now finally, let's jump forward one whole week and hear this, um, this interesting and helpful, clarifying story from Thomas, one of the twelve. Verse 24, he was called the twin. He was not with them when Jesus came that last Sunday night. So the other, I don't know where he was, but he wasn't there. And of course, Jesus wasn't there because he was dead. He had betrayed Jesus. So there was probably ten disciples there. So this time he is there. And the other disciples, verse 25, said, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the hands and the marks of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. And so then eight days later, as I've said, here he comes. And Thomas is with them. And the doors are locked again. And Jesus comes in and he gives the same greeting that he gave a week earlier. Peace be with you. And then he speaks directly to Thomas. I can't imagine how this must have felt for him. A super embarrassment and joy and all kinds of things all at once, but he's, he says to him, why don't you touch me? See this? Real. No hallucination, no ghost. This is me. Touch this. I'm, I'm going to allow you to do what you said you wanted to do in order to believe. And then I, there's no record of whether or not he actually does it. There's no record of whether or not he actually takes Jesus' offer and, and, but goes and touches the scars that Jesus has from his crucifixion. Nails in his hand. Spear in his side. He does say something very helpful and interesting. He says, do not disbelieve, but believe. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas's response is recorded in verse 28. My Lord and my God. He declares the deity of Jesus. My Lord and my God. And then Jesus, uh, as he does at the end of his priestly prayer in John 17, it says, if he, he looks forward to the annals of time to us, and he offers us a beatitude, Blessed are those of you who have not seen, and in other words, have not, you weren't there in AD 33. You weren't eyewitness testimonies, but yet you have believed the eyewitness testimonies of people that had clear issues and barriers to their own belief, like Mary Magdalene and the other women that were there. Or like the, the faster John the Apostle who outran Peter to the tomb and was trying to figure out what to do with the Old Testament in light of the New Covenant. Or, or like, like Peter himself, who's sort of hunkering down and hiding and confused and scared, I guess, of the, of the powers that he's supposed to speak truth to. But really, he's not been reinstated, and he's, he's, he realizes he's, he's lied about his affiliation with Jesus. He's, he's cursed under the cover of the night. I mean, talk about a guy that wasn't there when it counted. And, and so you have all these barriers, barriers of self. As if Jesus, it's as if Jesus breaks through them all, man, woman, older, younger. It's as if he breaks through them all including Thomas's doubts, to, to say, I've got this, follow me. 
I've done it. Follow me. Blessed are those that weren't here and will believe. Blessed are we. It's almost as if he's foreseeing a rationalist age, the underbelly of enlightenment, to the point of which you say you have to have, and Thomas did too, and I'm just telling you, blessed to you for believing what you got. The demands for a sign, there's no end to them. Jesus says, what is written is written that you may believe. And boy, we stumble over the stumbling stone until we don't. We stumble over it until we don't. He says to the self-styled sharp guy, as well as to the clever gal, do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus' preference is the Spirit's enabling and this written, completed scripture, even to Thomas's experience. Those signs are now our signs. Those words are our words. Inscripturated here for all to read and see. For the next generation to hear. And finally, that purpose statement for the whole gospel is in the last two verses of our text. Let's hear it with fresh ears. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. He did lots of other things. John is selective in what he puts in this gospel. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He did lots of other things. That are not written in this book. Or even in this book of books. The Bible. But, verse 31. Why is what is written written? Why the selection that's been made? This was written as the apostles and prophets were carried on by the Holy Spirit for the purpose that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Do you? Do you believe? Oh, what rights you have through belief in fact it says that those who believe then may have life in Jesus name I don't know how we would overcome our fear of death without the promise of life I don't know how we would overcome our grief for loved ones that die without our promise of life. Perhaps anxiety has never been higher and on the rise than it is right now because there's so little faith in our geography in Jesus as the Son of God and the promise of His life. Do you believe? May today be the start of wonderful, fresh Christian practices in your life because of that belief. You know, I think step one would be, since this is all about a Sunday, would be coming back on the next Sunday, on the next Lord's Day. And just purposing now, knowing you're going to have 
six reasons from the enemy why you shouldn't be here next Sunday before you get here, but to come back to church or to a church, some place that you live or that you, that you want to trust your soul to be taken care of, go on the Lord's Day and worship. I think that'd be a good application to such a Sunday-heavy text. The Lord's Day, treated as such, for rest and worship and communion with the believers. It would be wonderful, I think. What else might you do with, with this fresh and newfound faith, having confessed faith in Jesus as the Son? Well, I, would, I would say, you know, get started trying to figure out learning the Bible because of what He's done for you, not, not have to have it figured out and then come, but because of what He's done for you. Start trying to see how the Bible fits together. Come be a part of learning at the church. We when we gather, we have the teaching and preaching of the word. Listen intently, take notes, follow along, read ahead in the passages that will be preached, which are published, so that you can grow. That's another application to this text, perhaps for you, would be to, to formally unite yourself with this local church. To move beyond laying the foundation again and again of, I believe, I think I believe, I believe, I think I believe, into the assurance that comes through Christ's word administered in the body of Christ by becoming an active member of a local church. We're going to be talking about that in just a few weeks on May 1st. You can come back next week and get your teaching materials and then come back the week after and be a part of the class. This is just a few simple applications. It all starts with belief. It all starts with your belief in Christ. Trusting him to do something for you that, that you can't do for yourself. He meets you in your tears with all of his co-weepers. And he grants you eternal life through faith in him and him alone. Let us pray.